0: One, two, three. Testing 123, testing 123. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part two of Magic and the Book of Mormon. Today is Tuesday, May 5th, 2020. Here at Radio Free Mormon, I am engaged in my seventh week of putting up a new podcast every weekday. To try and help those sheltering at home during the midst of this worldwide pandemic caused by the coronavirus. Happy Cinco de Mayo to all of my listeners. My goal was to put this podcast up yesterday on Monday, May 4th, 2020, and I recorded fully an hour and a half on this subject. But as the day wore on and I was editing, this podcast, more and more ideas came to me. And I realized that in order to do justice to this part two of the podcast, it was going to take more time than I had available to me on Monday, May 4th. And so I am back at it here early in the morning on May 5th, 2020. My goal is to add additional material to this podcast, get the entire thing edited and ready for prime time and get it up at RadioFreeMormon.org by this afternoon. So, a lot of what you will hear in today's podcast is what I recorded yesterday, and it will be interspersed with additional comments and insights from yours truly, recorded today, May 5th. So, let's get to it, shall we? The last episode I did was on Friday of last week. That episode was titled Magic and the Book of Mormon. And in that episode, I spent some time looking at the translation process of the Book of Mormon from the perspective of. A magician. By the end of the episode, I had concluded that from a magician's point of view, the translation was never about the stone. It was always about the hat. That particular episode almost did not get up, at least not last Friday. For a couple of reasons. The first reason was that I was all too aware that what I had published the day before on Thursday was a huge bombshell. It had to do with physical evidence that the LDS Church was involved in the Joseph Bishop cover-up. And I also knew that the podcast I wanted to do the day after regarding magic and the Book of Mormon would likewise also be another bombshell. And speaking of this, in terms simply of sequencing of podcasts, I recognized that doing two episodes back-to-back that I felt were extremely important and bombshells of one kind or another might not be the best strategy. In other words, if Thursday's podcast is a bombshell, I want that material to be digested and considered and perhaps even talked about in various venues before coming in the very next day with another bombshell. But because I was very interested in the subject and wanted to talk about it, I went ahead with my plan of doing... Magic in the Book of Mormon, the very day after episode 160, which was the special report on the MTC sex scandal cover up. The second thing that happened that almost made it so that Magic in the Book of Mormon did not go up Friday is that I came in early in the morning to my underground bunker and spent an hour and a half recording on the subject. But by the time I was done, I realized that I had not gotten to the points I wanted to make and in fact had spent way too much time talking about my career, if I can call it a career, as an amateur magician. So I spent all the time that I would usually spend on a given day recording and then realized that I was going to have to scrap everything that i had recorded and start over again from scratch this is an extreme measure on my part but i felt that i needed to take that step there was way too much radio free in the episode and not enough mormon in other words there was too much about me and not enough about the points i was trying to make so i went ahead sat down started recording again And then edited it throughout the rest of the day and finally put it up in the format that you heard called Magic and the Book of Mormon episode number 161 on Friday afternoon. As it turned out, I was very glad that I had gone to that extra effort and re-recorded the entire episode. Because this episode got a lot of attention, there was a great deal of commentary about it both on the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage as well as in other discussion forums across the internet. This one episode spun off three separate posts on ex-Mormon Reddit as well as a post on the Mormon Discussions message board. Once again, Mormon Discussion message board not affiliated with the Mormon Discussion podcast. But there were a number of comments that were made and a number of questions that were asked and even a number of challenges that were against my theory and I wanted to take an episode today and talk about some of those in each of those three categories. First off, with the comments that were made. I was very gratified to find out that I was not the only one who considered this to be a bombshell of sorts. Every now and again, I will think something is important and my listeners will not think it's important. On the other hand, sometimes I will think something is not important and my listeners really find it meaningful. It's hard to predict how a particular podcast is going to be received. Now, I'm not going to read all the comments that this podcast generated. However, I am going to read a couple and refer to others. I received a number of posts from a listener named Chris Tolworthy, who asked me to please, please, please do an episode on Joseph Smith's other magic tricks. He then lists another of miraculous things that Joseph Smith did and asked me to comment on those. I'm not sure I'm going to have time to do that or necessarily anything meaningful to say about them. So I was grateful that Chris Tolworthy put a P.S., on his post saying, I hate it when people say, please, 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 and expect me to do a ton of work basically for free. So don't take my entitled begging too seriously. Just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Chris Tolworthy. I do appreciate your comments. I think you have a lot of insightful things to say. And at this point, I've got to tell you, I don't have a lot of things to say about these other miraculous things that Joseph Smith is reported as having done. One of which, by the way, would be when Joseph Smith seriously impressed Martin Harris that Joseph had the ability ability of a seer by finding things that were lost. And specifically, there's a story about a lost pin, P-I-N, that Martin Harris was unable to find and that Joseph Smith was able to find, by looking at the seer stone in his hat. He also mentions persuading eight witnesses that they actually hefted and turned gold plates, along with a banking scandal in which Joseph Smith reportedly represented that he had a chest full of gold coins which he showed prospective investors and the story that then circulated that really he did not have a chest full of gold coins, he had a chest full of something, but he simply overlaid whatever that something was with a few gold coins to give the impression that the chest was full of gold coins. But Actually, now that I think about it, I may have a thing or two to say about both of those examples. First off, the example of the eight witnesses to the gold plates. I do not know exactly what happened that day. I know what is reported to have happened that day but I will say that it is very common for magicians who are performing on stage to allow spectators to come up from the audience to examine the different articles the magician is going to use in performing whatever illusion he or she is about to perform. It is meant to give the appearance of allowing the spectator to have free and unfettered access to what it is the magician is going to use. However, those examples are usually very tightly controlled so that the spectator can look at what the magician allows the spectator to look at, but doesn't get to look at the part that the magician does not want to allow the spectator to look at all while giving the impression the spectator gets to look at anything that's important that's what the eight witness incident reminds me of and when i say by the way that i know what is reported to have happened but i don't know exactly what happened is because spectators to magic tricks are notoriously bad at recounting what it is they actually observed. The magic trick itself is meant to give a certain impression to a spectator and frequently the spectator recounts not what they actually saw but the impression that they were meant to receive. Anybody who's been doing magic as long as I have, has had the wonderful experience of performing a trick for a spectator and then turning around and watching that spectator tell somebody else who didn't actually see the trick what it was that happened. In other words, having the chance to listen to the spectator describe the trick that you performed to a third party. And every now and again, what will happen is that you will actually hear the spectator describe the trick you performed in a way that's different than the way you performed it and in fact describe it in such a way that you couldn't have done it the way the spectator describes it. If you had done it the way the spectator described it, it would truly have been miraculous. And that's why I have to be very careful in distinguishing between what actually happened, which I have no way of seeing, versus what it is that the spectator or the witnesses report as having happened. Because it is always possible that they're reporting something not the way it really happened, but the way that they were fooled into believing that it happened. I also wanna say something about the example that Chris Tolworthy gave of the incident where joseph smith allegedly put gold coins on top of a chest in order to give the impression that the entire chest was full of gold coins this is an old kind of magic trait that goes way back and can be used in a variety of circumstances up to and including having a stack of one dollar bills and putting a 100 dollars bill on the top and the bottom in order to give the impression that they're all $100 bills. But as far as card tricks go, there is a classic card trick which is where you take a deck of cards, and this can be a regular deck of cards, and you fan them out, allow the spectator to pick any card and memorize it. You then bring the fan of cards back into one deck and you allow the spectator to place his card at any location he wants to in the deck. The magician then says a few magic words and spreads the cards out face up and there is one card now that has magically turned face down in the deck and only one card in the middle of the face down deck you then have the spectator name the card that the spectator selected pull out the one card that's face down and turn it face up and lo and behold that is their card their card miraculously turned face up in the face down deck now here's the reason that this trick came to my mind when I was thinking about the example of the gold coins. I'm not gonna exactly tell you how to do the reverse card in the face down deck, but I am going to simply observe that if you take a deck of cards and you keep them all together in one block, and you turn them face up in your hand, and then you take the bottom card and turn that one card face down on what is now the top of this deck. It will look for all intents and purposes like you are holding a completely face down deck in your hand in front of the spectator when in fact you're holding a face up deck that looks like a face down deck because you have taken the card that's on the face of the deck and turned it face down. Of course, you can't fan out the cards in order to have the one card that the spectator selected return, so you have to keep them all together in a block and have it returned that way. Of course, you don't actually say that the reason you're not fanning them out is because if you found them out, the spectator would see that all the other cards are face up in the deck. Instead, you say that the reason you're keeping them all in a block when the spectator returns the card is so that you can't possibly know where it is, and what location it is that the spectator is returning that card. This is another fun principle. You actually take the thing that makes it so that you can do the trick. It's the gimmick. It is the soft spot in the trick. And by soft spot, I mean this is where a spectator could see that this is how you're doing it. But you take that thing that's the weak spot in the trick and you describe it as... A strength of the trick. This is actually how you're performing the trick but you describe it in terms of you're doing it this way in order to make the trick harder. So yes a false top or a false bottom depending upon the direction you look at it is a common theme in magic tricks since time immemorial, and this may be a good example of what I described earlier. If a spectator that you do the reverse card in the deck trick, then subsequently describes it to somebody else, they are probably not going to include the fact that when they return the card, you insisted on holding it in a tight block of cards. You didn't fan it out for them to return the cards. No, you insisted on having it in a tight block so that it made it harder for you to do the trick. When they're describing this to somebody else, that detail is not important to them Because you made it so that it's not important. The detail that makes the trick work is generally not emphasized in a magic trick. So therefore, it's not considered important enough to recount to somebody else later. With the result that when it's recounted later, frequently, the part of the trick that made the trick work does not wind up getting described in a subsequent recounting. And so this is something that I, as a magician, have to take into account when I'm looking at what the eight witnesses or anybody else is describing as a magical or supernatural effect. That if I were there watching it actually occur as a magician, I might be focusing on things that they do not see as important and that therefore they leave out of their recounting of the story. Let me give you one more example of this. I was watching a video on YouTube the other day where an individual was performing a card trick, and all you can see is the top down view of the cards as he's doing the card trick. And what a spectator, what a normal spectator might see is that he's taking a card, somebody else picks a card, looks at it, memorizes it, puts it back in the deck, he then is shuffling up the deck He riffle shuffles the deck, he overhand shuffles the deck a couple of times, and then he's ready to proceed. Now, what I as a magician see is first off, he's having a card freely selected, returned to the deck, he then executes a sleight of hand maneuver called the pass, which brings the card to the top of the deck, He then shuffles the cards, maintaining the card on the top of the deck. He then overhand shuffles the deck a number of times in order to take that card that was on the top of the deck and move it to the bottom of the deck. So he's ready to go. Once he has shuffled the cards and the spectator's card from the spectator's point of view is lost in the shuffled deck. I actually already know it's on the bottom, ready to go on with the next part of his trick. And I can only see this, number one, because I know the moves, right? This is stuff that I know. It's not evident that it's happening because the guy who's doing it is pretty skilled. I only know it's happening because I know it's happening. The second thing is I can only see it because I'm watching it. If I am relying on a spectator to recount it to me later and describe it, I can't see what's happening. I'm forced to rely on what the spectator tells me happened, which is probably going to be incomplete and not allow me to see the different slights that are occurring while I'm watching the trick being performed. So the spectator is seeing the magician shuffle up the cards in a number of different ways in order to hopelessly lose his selected card in the deck. Meanwhile, what I'm seeing is a series of slides being performed in order to take that card from the middle of the deck where the spectator returned it and get it to the bottom of the deck so the magician can continue with his trick. So I hope that's enough for you, Chris Tolworthy. That's about all I'm gonna be able to say about the various different tricks that you suggest that Joseph Smith performed. And for which he got credit for being a prophet. But at this point, I actually have something additional to add to this discussion because this is Radio Free Mormon from May 5th, adding to what I said on May 4th. Last night when I was going to sleep, an idea came to my mind, which once again has to do with this idea that Chris Tolworthy mentioned about laying gold coins on the top of a chest in order to give the impression that the chest is full of gold coins. And this has to do with the description of the gold plates themselves. I think that we're all aware that the description of the gold plates is that two-thirds of the gold plates were sealed. And although Joseph Smith does not specifically mention a physical seal holding these two-thirds of the gold plates together, the bottom two-thirds of the gold plates together, several of the witnesses do describe a physical seal. For instance, David Whitmer said that when an angel showed him the plates in 1829, a large portion of the leaves were so securely bound together that it was impossible to separate them, and that the sealed part of the plates were held together as a solid mass, in his words, stationary and immovable, as solid, to my view, as wood, and that there were perceptible marks where the plates appeared to be sealed, with leaves so securely bound that it was impossible to separate them. And that is a collection of different statements that David Whitmer left regarding his description of the gold plates that Joseph Smith purportedly used to translate the Book of Mormon. David Whitmer is not alone in that description. Lucy Max Smith in 1842 said that some of the plates were sealed together while others were loose. The account of the eight witnesses says that they saw the plates in 1829 and handled as many of the leaves as Smith has translated, implying that they did not examine untranslated parts, such as the sealed portion. In one interview, David Whitmer said that about half the book, was unsealed in 1881 he said about one-third was unsealed now it was in 1881 that david whitmer described about one-third of the book being unsealed and that statement by david whitmer is consistent with with an 1856 statement by orson pratt who was an associate of joseph smith but who never actually saw the plates himself but had spoken with the witnesses that about two-thirds of the plates were sealed up. Okay, now I'm getting a lot of that information from the Wikipedia article on the golden plates. And the reason I'm going into this kind of detail about the physical seal that many of the witnesses saw on the plates, which apparently were two-thirds of the plates, at least that's the majority view of those witnesses who left statements regarding this physically sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. So basically, we've got a stack of plates that are presented to the eight witnesses and then apparently later perhaps to the three witnesses as well. The top one third of those plates are not sealed, they are loose, they can be handled, they can be turned, but the bottom two thirds of those plates are sealed and cannot be turned. They cannot be accessed for examination. Now, the story that Joseph Smith gives regarding why it is that these two thirds of the plates are are sealed is because they contain a vision the vision of the brother of Jared, the vision of all things, which is not supposed to be revealed at this time, but will be revealed at some point in the future. I guess we're still waiting on that. It's about 200 years down the road, and still no translation of this sealed portion, the sealed two thirds of the Book of Mormon gold plates. But nevertheless, if you're looking at this as a magician, the story that the two thirds of the plates are sealed because they contain a vision that the world is not ready for yet doesn't really hold up. It's kind of like the woofle dust that I mentioned in part one of this podcast. Why do I say it doesn't hold up? Well, the Book of Mormon itself describes the characters that are. Used the language that is inscribed on the gold plates as being written in Reformed Egyptian and nobody in the world knows this language. Nobody can read it without special divine assistance from God. It is not something that anybody in the entire world could pick up, look at and be able to actually translate it. So really, the language in all the plates of the Book of Mormon, both sealed and unsealed, is described as being something that nobody can read. Why is that important? because it seems to make no sense really to physically seal two-thirds of a book to prevent it from being read when it's already written in a language that nobody can read anyway. Why do you have to seal two-thirds of a book to keep it from being read when nobody could read it even if it weren't physically sealed? That's the question I'm raising. And so this explanation that Joseph Smith gives as to why two-thirds of the plates have to be sealed appears to be woofle dust. It doesn't hold up under examination not from the perspective of a magician and therefore this description of the gold plates appears to be one third of a set of plates that are placed on top of a block that is not a set of plates at all. Instead, it is a solid mass. This is like spreading gold coins on top of other material so that it appears that the entire chest is full of gold coins. And remember that the description of the set of gold plates is not that terribly deep. It is described as being six inches deep, which means that two thirds, or four inches, are a solid block and only the top two inches of plates are loose and available for examination. So what it looks like from the point of view of a magician is that this is a prop. And the prop is supposed to look like it's entirely made up of plates, but really it's only the top section that is made up of plates. The rest is a solid mass. And the reason it's a solid mass is to keep anybody else from actually looking at those plates because if they did, they would find out that they're not plates at all. Or at least if they are plates, they're not inscribed with characters. This is a method of trying to make the Book of Mormon plates look like it's entirely plates when really it's just the top that are plates set over a solid mass on the bottom. It's the reverse card in the deck trick all over again. So, that was another thought that came to my mind last night while I was thinking about this issue and how taking this view of a magician and applying it to other aspects related to the Book of Mormon, and in this instance, the Book of Mormon plates themselves, reveals new and, to my mind, interesting insights. Now, I want to go on to some other comments that were made by individuals who were especially struck by the first podcast that I did on this subject and how it opened up their mind to new ideas if you look at the Book of Mormon translation process through the eyes of a magician. The first comment I want to read along these lines is a representative post from listener Angie Coulter. When I say representative, I mean it is indicative of some of the responses that this podcast got that were extremely eye-opening for certain listeners. Angie Coulter writes, Are you for real? Seriously, RFM, you cracked the code. Until now, I didn't think my estimation of Joseph Smith could fall any lower. As I listened to you apply your simple childhood magician know-how to something that has baffled the most learned, I was blown away." This explanation explains everything. It's the square peg in the square hole. While so much of the evidence shows that the Book of Mormon was composed fiction, I always wondered how the whole translation ruse was played out as far as just dictating it out of his head. That seemed to be asking a lot for us to believe. I don't care how smart everyone thinks he was. But having his cheap notes prepared to read from daily really solves that problem. No wonder it was under penalty of death that anyone examined his lowly props. And Angie Coulter goes on with her comment in a similar vein. I'm not going to read the entire comment, but I do want to read that much to give you a feel for how certain listeners are responding to this podcast. A similar type of comment was made over at the Mormon Discussions message board by an individual who posts under the name Shulem. Here's what Shulem writes. Extra, extra, read all about it. Radio Free Mormon just dropped a bomb on the Book of Mormon. A bomb. Nothing will ever be the same after this. Everything has changed. Give him the old razzle-dazzle, razzle-dazzle him. RFM, it never occurred to me that Joseph Smith fooled Oliver Cowdery by using a parlor trick. Not in my wildest imagination did it occur to me that Oliver really thought that Smith mysteriously threw a miraculous gift of God, translated the Book of Mormon while his head was in a hat. You, RFM, so it appears, have unlocked the secret trick and exposed Joseph's sleight of hand. The hat was the trick. The stone was the distraction. Now, once again, this is May 5th Radio Free Mormon breaking into what I recorded yesterday on May 4th because since that time, additional comments have come in that I want to share with you. Following up on that post by Shulem, none other than Simon Southerton weighs in and writes this. This truly is an amazing RFM episode. I love the way he logically walks us through all the essential components of the trick. This is my favorite episode by far. We know Joseph was fascinated by folk magic. Very occasionally, Shulem can stray into hyperbole, but not this time. I believe this is a major advance in our understanding of how Joseph Smith pulled off one of the greatest magic tricks of the 19th century. Well, thank you for that, Simon Southerton. Finally, I want to share this other post that came in last night. This from an individual named Wayne who lives in Utah. I do know his last name. I actually know this individual, just not sure if he wants me to use his last name in this podcast. However, what he writes is this. Just got done listening to RFM's Magic and the Book of Mormon, episode 161. All I can say is, RFM is a genius. thank you, and is a brilliant podcaster. I don't think the LDS Church has any idea what they are up against yet with this former Mormon apologist. RFM, almost on a daily basis, is dismantling the Mormon Church by completely deconstructing important parts of their 200-year-old narrative. Well, thank you for that, Wayne. Thank you for that, Simon. Thank you for that, Shulam. And thank you for that, Angie, once again, these are representative samples of very positive comments that have been coming in regarding episode 161, Magic, and the Book of Mormon. And it is this overwhelmingly positive response that has prompted me to take the time and effort necessary to do a part two to that podcast. But I wanted to read those comments to you in order to give you an idea of how meaningful this podcast was to some of my listeners. And of course, when I see how meaningful it is to them, it becomes even more meaningful to me. But there were also a number of questions and a number of challenges that were made to this theory from various individuals. And I want to respond to those here, not necessarily by reading their posts. There's so many posts out there, but by referencing their posts. The first challenge to my theory is that some people said that it had already been postulated that Joseph Smith had notes in his hat from which he read during the translation process. I want to be clear. I am aware of that. I don't want to be understood as representing that I'm the first guy in the world who ever came up with this idea, because I'm not. All I was doing was trying to look at the translation process through the eyes of a magician, not necessarily to come up with a brand spanking new theory that had never been heard before. Number two, the question has been asked that it would be very difficult for Joseph Smith to have the entire text of the Book of Mormon hidden in his hat, from which he read while pretending to translate, from his stone? This question and this challenge has been made on a couple of different fronts. First off, the challenge was made in one of the threads over at Mormon Reddit that if Joseph Smith really had the entire text, the entire text written out beforehand, then he would have had the entire text of the 116 pages available to him so that when the dictated text was stolen, Joseph Smith could have reproduced the entirety of the 116 pages word for word as it had been dictated. What I want to be clear about here is that I am not saying, number one, that Joseph Smith had the entirety of the 116 pages or the entirety of the Book of Mormon written out prior to dictating. It is possible that he did, but I'm not saying that it's necessary to this theory. He could have simply had some notes or an outline of certain things that he wanted to cover and then embellished upon that during the course of dictation. One listener posits that, Joseph Smith was a gifted storyteller and therefore he did not need to have notes at all. He could have just done it out of his head. And certainly that's a possibility. I cannot say at this point in time, looking back 200 years, how it was exactly that Joseph Smith accomplished this dictation of the Book of Mormon. Yes, he could have done it without notes. Yes, he could have done it with partial notes. Yes, he could have done it with complete notes. So I want to be clear that I'm not advocating one specific theory as the be-all and end-all revelation of how it is that Joseph Smith actually translated and dictated the Book of Mormon. All I'm saying is that, looking at the translation process through the eyes of a magician, it seems pretty clear to me that the translation process was never about the stone which Joseph Smith claimed it was, it was always about the hat. And here I have to add that I just did a three-part podcast on the complexity of the narrative of Jesus's ministry to the Nephites. And from my point of view, the more complex the Book of Mormon ends up being, the less likely it seems to me that it could have been dictated on the fly. It's always a possibility, but the more complicated the text is, the less likely I think it is that Joseph Smith just did it out of his storytelling ability. Some notes, at a minimum, would have probably been required. Another question arises along these lines about how I had said, that a magician never performs the same trick twice for the same audience because the odds go up that the audience will figure out how the trick is done. And if Joseph Smith had made a regular practice of concealing notes in his hat, he was reading off of during the translation of the book of mormon that that would be the same thing as performing the same magic trick more than once and definitely more than once multiple times and still trying to get away with it would not that increase the odds of being found out well my response to this is a couple of things first off yes it does increase the odds of being found out but i have to put a caveat to that too because whenever a magician is performing a magic trick everybody understands that it's a trick everybody understands that the magician is not really doing something magic. There's a gimmick, there's a trick to it, and it is that trick that the magician is doing that can be found out more readily if the magician repeats the trick or does the trick more than once. In this situation, however, it's a little bit different. Joseph Smith is not presenting as performing a magic trick. He is presenting as engaged in a divinely directed process of dictation of an ancient text. He also does not appear to be performing this magic trick, if I can call it that for purposes of this podcast, this magic trick for a very critical audience. In other words, he's performing it for an audience that wants to believe that what he's doing is miraculous. So in other words, he's performing it for a very small audience and that audience does not think it's a magic trick and is therefore not inclined to look for the way that Joseph Smith did the trick. In much the same way, many Mormons who have been raised Mormon or joined the church like I did when I was 18 and have heard this story about the translation process over and over and over again and listened to and heard the different witness statements regarding the process are not looking for a magic trick. We are not thinking that Joseph Smith performed some kind of sleight of hand or ledger domain. Instead, we are thinking that Joseph Smith actually was engaged in a miraculous dictation of the Book of Mormon. And because of that, there are many people who have spent decades in the church, including myself and some of the people who have commented, people who know a lot about LDS history, who are suddenly astonished by the idea that this could have been a magic trick and that when you look at the dictation process from the point of view of a magician all of a sudden things start making sense in a way that they had never made sense before. So I think this goes towards an understanding that when you're looking at something as miraculous you're going to tend to see it as miraculous but if you're looking at something as a magic trick Then you're going to be looking at it in a very different way and it's when you're looking at it critically as a magic trick that you are more likely to figure out how it's done after repeated performances of the same trick in much the same way that i and many others of my listeners have heard about all these accounts about how the translation was done over and over and over and over again but it's only when you look at it as a magician that suddenly it looks like a magic trick and indeed a very simple magic trick. So that's one response that I have to the challenge that wouldn't Joseph Smith repeating the same magic trick over and over make it more likely that he would be found out. The second response I have is this, that not only was there a limited audience, Joseph Smith had given injunctions to the witnesses to the translation process that they could not really look at him closely, they could not look at the stone while it was in the hat. Otherwise, they would arouse the wrath of an angry God and be struck dead on the spot. So really, Joseph Smith is engaged if it's a magic trick. and Once again, this is just a theory of mine. If Joseph Smith is engaged in a magic trick and he has laid the ground rules that the people who are in the same room with him can't really look closely at him or what he's doing. I mean, he's doing it inside a hat in the first place, right? But if he can make it so that they don't dare look at him or scrutinize him too closely, then he is much better able to get away with performing the same trick twice. All I can say to you is that in all the magic tricks I've done for the past 50 years, as a general rule, I'm doing it in front of the spectator and the spectator is definitely looking at what I'm doing because that's the whole point, right? To be able to fool a spectator while they're watching you perform the magic trick. But if I could get a spectator to agree to not look at me while I'm performing a magic trick, I can guarantee you I could get away with a lot more stuff than I can while they're looking right at me, scrutinizing my every move. Another comment is that the witnesses would not necessarily be looking for, an alternate method to the translation process other than the method that Joseph Smith already gave them. And that is the method that the church has repeated ever since. That the method was to use the stone, the stone, the stone. So the witnesses understand that Joseph Smith is dictating using his seer stone. They're not thinking about the hat. They already have an answer, but the answer is not the hat, the answer is the stone. So once having the answer, they're not going to be inclined to look for a separate answer to explain what it is they already think they have the answer for. Why search for something if you haven't lost it? Looked at this as a magician, it's another example of giving the soft spot in the trick, i.e. the gimmick part of the trick, an alternate explanation so that you don't look at the gimmicked part. You're looking at the stone, not at the hat. That's the whole point, and to the extent that the gimmick was in the hat, Joseph Smith is playing it perfectly and his audience is following suit exactly according to plan. And the last thing I want to say about this is that the other main witness, the other person who would be the primary witness to Joseph Smith's dictation is very busily engaged in writing down what it is that Joseph Smith is dictating. So this other person, the other primary witness who is the scribe, is not in a position to be able to pay the kind of close attention to what Joseph Smith is doing, even if there were no death threats from God to put them in a really good position to try and figure out what it is that Joseph Smith's doing even if they thought it was a magic trick and not a miracle. Let me tell you, a little magic trick that you can do that relies on the same premise. There are some times when you're doing a magic trick when you're gonna do something that is really obviously tricky. You don't want your audience to see things that you do that are tricky. Those are the things you try and conceal from them. Everything you wanna show an audience is something that is completely normal and completely natural. But it is possible while playing cards with somebody to be able to do a magic trick that makes it look like you are able to control cards and deal out amazing poker hands even though you don't actually have that ability. The effect would be this. You've been playing cards with somebody for a while and you say, here, let me try and see if I can do something here special with the cards. Let's just deal out a hand of poker, shall we? And you shuffle the cards, you shuffle the cards, you shuffle the cards until they're thoroughly mixed. Then you deal out two poker hands, one to the other person and one to yourself. You both pick up your hands and lo and behold, the other person has five random cards and you have four aces or whatever the case may be. Four aces is always... Pretty effective. Now, for all intents and purposes, it looks like you are amazing. You have incredible card skills that so you're able to control the card such that you can deal out a poker hand of four aces to yourself by skill alone. But really, it's not that difficult. And I'm going to tell you the secret now and you could do this yourself with little to no practice. Here's how it goes. First off, this is in the middle of playing cards with somebody else. And so there are cards that whatever game you're playing, it might be gin, but there's going to be a number of cards that are face up on the table. And as you are collecting them in order to deal them, you collect five cards, which would make a really good poker hand. Four aces is really good, by the way. And what you do is you take those five cards. There would be four aces and a random card. You take those four cards, you collect in such a way that those five cards are together and you collect them in such a way that they are on the bottom of the deck but before you put them on the bottom of the deck you give the cards a little crimp lengthwise so that you can see that they are readily separated from the bottom of the deck. In other words, you can see on the bottom of the deck, if you look at it from the side, where those five cards are because there will be a break there because of the crimp you put in it. It's not a big crimp. It's not going to mangle the cards forever. It's just a little bend to the cards to suit the purpose. You then shuffle the cards several times in order to give the impression that they are thoroughly mixed up. And in fact, they are except for the five cards at the bottom because you shuffle it in such a way that those five cards remain on the bottom of the deck. This is called a false shuffle. Now comes the fun part. And this is the part that has to do with keeping the spectator busy while you're doing something right in front of them that otherwise would look very suspicious. You deal out the two poker hands, and when you're dealing it out to the other person, you deal the cards out in a random fashion so that they are kind of messy and kind of far away from each other. In other words, when the two people, you and the spectator, pick up the cards, they're going to have to do a little bit of work in order to get their cards together, square them, and organize them, and then they're going to pick them up and look at them. Now that's gonna keep them busy, even though they're right across the table from you. That's gonna keep them busy enough so that they will not see what it is you're gonna do next, even though you're gonna do it right in front of them. And to make sure this goes according to plan, you make it clear to the spectator before you begin dealing that the spectator is supposed to wait until all the cards are dealt before they begin to pick up their poker hand. You have, of course, when you've dealt to you, dealt your cards in a neat pile. The five cards to the spectator are messy. The five cards to you are in a neat pile. And as soon as the spectator begins picking up his cards, after they've been dealt, you take the deck, put it next to the five cards you've dealt to you in a neat stack, then using that break in the deck that separates the five cards at the bottom, remember the four aces, plus one additional card, you place the deck next to your pile, flat on the table, lift it up so that the five cards at the bottom remain there in a pile, and then move the deck over on top of your newly dealt poker hand and place it on top. Now, once again, this is happening right in front of the spectator, but the spectator's busy. The spectator's picking up his or her cards and organizing them, so they don't see what you've done, even though you've done it right in front of them. You then pick up your new poker hand that was on the bottom of the deck, and you spread it in front of you. Meanwhile, you bend it a little bit to get rid of that suspicious-looking crimp down the center, and the spectator reveals their cards, which are just five random cards. I mean, theirs is a real poker hand that was dealt to them, and now. You reveal your hand, which is four aces, you have magically dealt yourself a four ace poker hand and you can claim all the credit that a card mechanic is due. So all I'm saying here is that it's easy to get away with doing something in a magic trick if you have the spectator busy doing something else, picking up their cards and arranging them, or whether it's writing down what it is you're dictating. And it's easy to get away with doing something that if the spectator were not busy at the time that you would never get away with if indeed they were not busy and were watching your every move. So during those frequent periods during the dictation process when the scribe is busy writing it down what Joseph Smith has dictated and is busy looking at the paper, what could Joseph Smith get away with doing in front of the scribe that he could not otherwise get away with doing. Does he need to rearrange something in the bottom of the hat? Well, now's the time. Another aspect of this idea of not repeating the same trick twice for the same audience is that frequently there are multiple ways of performing the same effect. For instance, in the last episode, when I was talking about a method of pulling a rabbit out of a hat, I said the classic method of pulling a rabbit out of a hat. When there are classic tricks They come to be famous just because of their very nature and their popularity. Magicians frequently put their heads to the problem of coming up with different and ever more amazing ways of performing the same trick. And even though the average spectator may not be aware of it, typically what magicians try and do is come up with a new way of performing a trick that makes it so it could not have been performed in the old way it was performed. Sawing a lady in half would be another example, perhaps levitating a person in air would be another example of tricks and illusions that were performed originally one way, but that subsequent generations of magicians have come up with new and ever more amazing ways of accomplishing the same effect. And in card magic, another example would be the four aces trick. Now the four aces trick is a very, very popular trick. It's where you take four aces, put them on the table face down at what would be the corners of a large square. You then take three indifferent cards, it doesn't make any difference what these other three cards are, and you put them face down on top of each of the face down aces so that at four corners of a square on the table you have four aces face down and on top of them are three face down in different cards. You then have the spectator select any of those four piles and put their hand over it just to keep them safe and to make sure that there's no way that I as the magician can touch any of those cards that are in the pile. Pile that the spectator selected. I then turn over the top three cards of the other three unselected piles, which are of course indifferent cards. I then turn over the ace, but the ace is now an indifferent card. I do that in the first pile, I do it in the second pile, I do it in the third pile. All three of the aces that were at the bottom of those three different piles that the spectator did not choose are now mysteriously changed into other cards. The spectator is then directed to take his hand off of his pile that he selected and turn those cards up one at a time on the table, and of course, each of those four cards in that pile have now become the four aces. That is the classic four aces trick. And I know one way to perform that trick, but I also know that other magicians have come up with different methods of performing the four aces trick. So if the trick that Joseph Smith was doing was dictating the Book of Mormon, it would actually be beneficial to him to mix it up a little bit and use different methods for performing that magic trick. From at least one statement that Martin Harris left while he was acting as scribe for the 116 pages, Joseph Smith was on the other side of a curtain, and Martin Harris could not look around the curtain and look at Joseph Smith and see what it was he was doing. That was the context in which he gave that quote that I read in the last podcast, that he was not allowed to even look at Joseph Smith. Otherwise, he would incur the wrath of God and be struck dumb. So Joseph Smith, according to that statement, was behind a curtain and Martin Harris could not see and was not permitted to see what it was that Joseph Smith was doing as he was dictating the Book of Mormon. I can guarantee you, if I had a spectator who would allow me to be behind a curtain so they couldn't see and were warned not to look at what I was doing and yet was still going to be impressed... With any magical feat that I was doing behind a curtain, I could do some pretty miraculous stuff. Believe me. But then, later on, it appears that Joseph Smith also used his stone in a hat. This is a different way of performing the same magic trick of dictation. And if Joseph Smith from day to day would mix it up by having notes in his hat, other days not having notes in his hat and perhaps going off of his memory, if he mixed that up a bit, that would be all to his benefit and make it even less likely that his spectators, who are number one, mostly busy, writing down what it is that Joseph Smith is dictating and number two don't think it's a magic trick they think it is real dictation coming through a real seer who's reading real words off of a real seer stone. And number three, those spectators know that they can't examine the props themselves or look too closely at how it is Joseph Smith is performing this magic trick. Otherwise, God might get mad and smite them dead on the spot. When you've got all three of those things going for you, I've got to say, it's not surprising to me that Joseph Smith was able to get away with essentially performing the same trick twice and three times and even four times for the same audience. Over the weekend, I watched a documentary, actually for the second time, it's about James Randi. Now James Randi is a magician. He goes by the title, The Amazing Randi. And he has devoted the last part of his life to exposing charlatans. And when I say charlatans, I mean people that are performing magic tricks and pretending that they have real divine or miraculous powers and then use those powers in order to build people out of a lot of money. In a sense, he's replicating what Houdini did at the end of Houdini's career, When he went around making the circuit and exposing spiritualists and all the magic tricks that they were doing while claiming that they were actually being in contact with spirits from the other world. That's one of the reasons the title to the documentary about James Randi is called An Honest Liar because a magician is an honest liar. A magician will tell you that he's going to fool you and then he goes ahead and does so. And one of the people that James Randi went after was a psychic named Uri Geller and Uri Geller claimed to have psychic abilities and the way Uri Geller presented them was that they were not magic tricks but he really had these abilities and he was wowing people He was getting a huge following he was making a fortune well without going into too much of the details about this back and forth between James Randi and Uri Geller Uri Geller this was back in the 1960s or early 1970s I believe he was studied as a psychic at Stanford University by professors of parapsychology. Now these professors wanted to believe that Uri Geller really had these psychic abilities. And one of the reasons they wanted to believe it is because this was huge research on their part. If they had actually found somebody who had psychic abilities, then they were going to make their names in history. So they came up with a lot of different methods and a lot of different experiments that they would use in order to test Uri Geller's psychic abilities. And lo and behold, Uri Geller would perform his magic tricks and convince these professors, these highly educated, highly intelligent individuals, that he really had psychic abilities. And what James Randi did was he took two young magicians. One, I think, was 17 years old. He was a senior in high school, and he had been doing some amateur magic, kind of like I did when I was that age, except I think he was probably better than I ever was, and another young man who was also a magician. And he took both of those people and submitted them to a different set of professors who were similarly looking for people who had psychic powers and even telekinetic powers, the ability to move objects with your mind. And they set up all sorts of different experiments And these two magicians went in and they're performing magic tricks and fooling the professors. The professors are amazed at the psychic abilities that these two magicians have. So on the one hand, with Uri Geller at Stanford, it's impossible to prove conclusively that he's doing magic tricks, even though James Randi can look at what he's doing, because it was video recorded as part of the research, and identify the gimmicks he's using in order to accomplish his tricks. But the professors, even though they're highly educated, They want to believe that Uri Geller is doing actual psychic feats. And even though they set up experiments to try and make sure that he can't do it in some way other than true psychic ability, Uri Geller is able to overcome the obstacles of the setup, perform the tricks anyway, and convince the professors that, yep, he's got it. This is miraculous. He really has the gift. So what James Randi, the Amazing Randi, did in order to counter that example was use his own two magicians as plants in a separate type of experiment. Once again, with very, very smart college level professors, but these professors also wanted to believe that these magicians had psychic abilities. And after the research was completed and the professors had come out and claimed publicly that yeah, these two guys, these two magicians actually have psychic abilities, then there was the big reveal. That actually, they had just been doing magic tricks and they didn't have any psychic ability at all. So this tells us a couple of things. First off, it doesn't make any difference how smart you are, how intelligent you are, how well educated you are. You can be fooled by magic. You can be fooled by a magician. The other thing it shows is that If you want to believe that a magic trick is actually being done by supernatural powers, then the odds are you are going to believe that it's being done by supernatural powers. The very desire to believe is going to make you effectively blind to things that you might otherwise see if you didn't desire to believe it so much. And I'll let you figure out for yourself how that fits in to a religious situation and to Joseph Smith's dictation of the Book of Mormon, both regarding how the witnesses to that process observed it because they wanted to believe that what joseph smith was doing was real and divine and also all the millions of people who have joined the church who have heard those stories and believed and wanted to believe that what joseph smith was doing was divine and not a magic trick okay now i have to bring up something else and that is the disappointment that some people who have commented about that podcast have expressed about learning how it is that joseph smith probably performed the trick once again i'm not saying this is the way he did it All I'm saying is this is what occurs to a magician when he's looking at the translation process from a magician's point of view. It's not about the stone, it's about the hat and something's going on with that hat that has the gimmick, that has the trick in it. Here's something that John comments on May 3rd, 2020. Why is it so easy to be tricked and also so easy to see the trick once explained? Of course this makes sense. And elsewhere, other listeners have expressed a sense of disappointment, of being upset, hurt, even angry at discovering that Joseph Smith was simply using a magic trick when he claimed to be dictating the Book of Mormon. In other words, it's all so easy. How could I have been so stupid? And this comes back once again to the psychology of magic and specifically why it is that you never reveal the way you do a trick to your audience. The first reason is the main reason is that you gotta keep it a secret. I mean, we're a brotherhood and sisterhood of magicians and we keep our secrets among ourselves. We don't reveal the secrets to how we do tricks to other people. I remember James Randi being on The Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder back in the 1970s. And James Randi had just performed a trick. I think he'd probably done some spoon bending because what he did was he replicated the tricks that Uri Geller did and exposed them for tricks. But he would not say how he did them because once again, he's a magician. He would simply say, no, I don't have psychic ability. This is just a magic trick and you could do it too if I showed you. And Tom Snyder, the host, asked him how you do that. And James Randi says the first thing that every magician says when they're asked how to do something, they usually say, very well, thank you. Or they can say, it's magic. But what the answers are, are dodges to get away from explaining how it is that they do it and hopefully to do it in a way that's humorous and not simply to come out and say, hey, I'm not gonna tell you. But Tom Snyder persisted and he said, no, 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 really. Can you tell me how you did that? And James Randi tells him, Look, I can't tell you. I'm not going to tell you because I'm a magician and that's part of the magician's code. We don't reveal how we do our secrets. And Tom Snyder says to him, but if I wanted to, I could probably go down to the nearest library and check out a book and read about it and figure out how you did it. And James Randi said back to him, he said, yes, you're absolutely right. You could. But experience has taught us that most people aren't interested enough to go to that effort. And that's absolutely true. People are interested enough to know how to do a trick to ask the magician how it's done, but they're usually not interested enough to actually go to the effort of researching it to learn for themselves. And so this is helpful to maintain the secrecy on how tricks are done. But the other reason that you don't tell an audience how it is you do a trick is not only because you've got to keep the secrecy going but also because there's a strange psychological phenomenon that every magician knows about that if you tell an audience member or spectator how it is you do a trick what often happens is first off they are deflated because they thought it was something very very difficult to perform something that they would never have thought of and when you tell them how it's actually done and they realize how simple it is, then they are let down. They actually feel disappointed. And often they feel disappointed in themselves. How could I have been taken in by such a simple trick? And then, as often as not, they will even get angry about it. And their anger at themselves for being taken in by such a simple trick frequently gets turned upon the magician himself or herself because even though we all understand that this is a magic trick. I mean, it's not really miraculous. I'm doing a magic trick for somebody. They're fooled by it, that's the whole point. It's entertaining, everything's great. They wanna know how to do it. If I tell them how to do it, then all of a sudden they realize it was very simple. How could I have been taken in by it? And how could you have taken me in with such a simple method? That's usually what happens in quick succession. So you can have A bunch of different emotions that hit the spectator at one and the same time when you make the mistake of telling them how a trick is performed. And I sense that kind of sentiment coming from a lot of listeners by the comments that they're making. So I can only imagine that that kind of feeling of being taken in by such a simple trick would only be increased if you had spent your entire life sacrificing so much for decades based upon this magic trick only to find out 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. Hey, it's a magic trick. The joke's on you. Ha ha. <laughs> okay, now I want to tell one last story about my career in magic. And this is gonna to help to illustrate a couple of points. The first one is one that we've already talked about, is it doesn't make any difference how intelligent you are, how educated you are. You can be fooled by magic. A lot of times we tend to think that, oh, well, only uneducated rubes are going to be fooled by magic and that the more intelligence a person has and the more learning they have and the more education they have, the less likely they are to be fooled by magic. The truth is actually the complete opposite. As any magician knows who has done kids' birthday parties, kids are the hardest ones to fool. The less education they have, the harder it is to fool them, the less cultured they are, the harder it is to fool them. And by cultured, what I mean is that kids are not as cultured as adults. They have not been acclimatized to the cultural expectations of the society around them. And that's what I mean when I say they're not as cultured as adults. Adults have been trained to do certain things in certain ways. Let me give you an example, basic example of misdirection. If I take my index finger and I point at something across the room and I look right where it is that I'm pointing, the odds are that a person who is an adult and who has been cultured in society knows that they should look exactly where it is I'm pointing and where it is I'm fixing my gaze and nine times out of ten that's exactly what they're gonna do. I mean have you ever just stood out in a street corner and stared up at the sky and just waited and waited and then look around you? and see all the other people who have stopped walking and are standing around and are looking up at the sky too because they wanna see what it is that you're looking at. Well, you're not looking at anything. All you're doing is making them look up the same way that you're looking up. Okay, adults will do that. Kids, it's much harder because they do not recognize the societal expectations of pointing and looking. Now, an extreme example would be a dog. If you point and look at something, they're not gonna look where you're looking. They're just gonna look at your hand. And the same thing goes For kids, they are not going to be as easily misdirected because they do not know the social cues and the social expectations that adults know that allows a magician to play upon those in order to trick them, in order to mislead them, in order to misdirect them. That's an obvious example and that's why it's harder actually to fool kids with magic than it is to fool adults. The more education you have, the older you are, the easier it is to fool you. So, let me tell you this incredible trick that I did back when I was a prosecuting attorney in the prosecutor's office. Geez, this would have been about 30 years ago now. Anyway, the elected official, the elected prosecutor, his name was Mike. He loved it that I did magic tricks. Every time the office would get together for a social function, he would want me to do some kind of magic trick and he's smart enough that he knew that he needed to ask me in advance of the gathering so that I would have time to come up with something, try to figure something out, come up with a good effect that I could do, hopefully impress everybody else, have a good time, be part of the fun and part of the entertainment. Not an entire magic show, but just one trick. So we're having a get together in the conference room at the prosecutor's office one day, I can't remember what the occasion was, it's not really important, but he asked if I would do some kind of a trick, and I said, okay, I'll come up with something. So we get there to the conference room, and I say, we are going to engage in an experiment. Now, by the way, you'll notice that I do this sometimes. I say we're gonna engage in an experiment. I don't say I'm gonna do a magic trick for you, because I want everybody to think that maybe, just maybe, this really is happening, that maybe something supernatural is happening. It's not just a magic trick, but there could be something more to it going on. And if they can't figure out the magic trick, then they're much more likely to think that maybe what it is I'm talking about that supernatural is what's really causing it. So I start out by introducing this trick, this experiment, (laughs) excuse me, by saying that this is the magical effect that fooled Houdini. And I actually read that somewhere. It may be true. I don't know. There's as much apocrypha that floats around about magic and magicians as there is about the New Testament and Jesus and even Joseph Smith. But I start out by saying that this is the magical effect that fooled even Houdini. Now, once I've said that, everybody's expecting something miraculous. Everybody's expecting something that is not simple. Everybody's expecting something that is really going to wow them. And indeed it does. But I will tell you right now that this is the simplest trick in the world. In fact, it's a trick that many people already know because they read about it somewhere. But I'm performing this now for an entire group of attorneys and legal assistants. We've got a lot of smarts here in this room, and I'm not just talking about the attorneys, believe me. But I don't think anybody's going to doubt the fact that when you've got everybody from a prosecuting attorney's office who's present in one room who's going to be witnessing me, Radio Free Mormon, performing a magic trick, that we got a lot of brains there, a lot of smarts there, which underscores the point I'm trying to make that. Just because you're educated, just because you're intelligent, doesn't mean you can't be fooled. So what I did was I said we were going to engage in an experiment in aportation. Now I have no idea what aportation is but I come up with this word in order to give a word to the experiment we're going to try and perform and I explain that with transportation you're moving something from one place to another with aportation you're moving something from one dimension to another. And once again, I always give the spiel about how I'm not sure this is going to work. It's something we're all going to try and do together and focus on and see if it works, right? There's always got to be the idea that this might not work in order for people to think that maybe it is something that's not a trick. A trick's always going to work, right? Yeah, right. As a magician, you know that's not true. But a trick's always going to work from an audience's point of view. But an experiment now, an experiment in aportation that may not work but of course it will. So anyway, I have everybody in the office form a circle and I'm part of this circle and I stick out my hand. Oh, first off, I have to borrow something. I have to borrow an item from somebody in the office that's going to be a ported that we're going to try and a port to another dimension, right? And the head of the civil division, the chief civil deputy, who is probably in his 50s or his 60s. He went to Princeton Law School. This guy is probably the smartest guy in the whole office based upon his education alone. But anyway, he says, okay, you can use my class ring. So he pulls off his Princeton class ring and that's what we use. And I take his class ring and I extend my arm, palm up, put his class ring in the middle of my palm and then I take a handkerchief and I put it over the palm. So his class ring is in my palm, but covered by a handkerchief. Once again, looking at this from a magician's point of view, obviously, if this could really aport. port, to another dimension. We don't have to have a handkerchief, but we want to have it so that people can't see the magic while the magic is happening, right? You see it before the magic happens and afterward you see that the magic has happened, but while the magic is actually happening, uh uh-uh, we gotta have a handkerchief. We gotta have some cover here. I instruct everybody in the circle now with around, I don't know, 12 people in it to put their right hand on the left shoulder of the person they're standing next to. I know it's starting to sound like a prayer circle, but that's as far as it goes. And then the person on my immediate left, I have them, instead of putting their hand on my shoulder, they go ahead and they put their hand around my wrist. Now, I have a long sleeve shirt on, but I have rolled up my sleeves. There's nothing funny going on here. This is really an experiment in aportation. I'm sorry, you actually have to practice so you can say those kinds of things with a straight face and not laugh while well, you <laughs> not laugh during the trick, right? So the person on my left puts their right hand around my wrist to make sure that that ring is going to stay put in my palm. It's not going anywhere even though it's under a handkerchief. The person on my right also puts their left hand around my wrist so that I've got two hands from two different people around my wrist ensuring the fact that that ring is not going to go up my non-sleeve cuz my sleeves rolled up as well, right? It's not going to go up my arm. It's going to stay put on my palm. And then what I do is I reach out with my left hand. I take off the handkerchief and I show that the ring is still there now that everybody's arranged in order in this circle. The ring is still there. I place the handkerchief back over the ring and then I make double and triple sure that everybody knows that that ring is in my hand. And I start with the person on my left and I allow them to reach up under the handkerchief and confirm for themselves by feel that the ring is still there in my hand and we go with that person to my left, then the person to that person's left, the person's to that person. Every single person in order around the circle gets to reach up under the handkerchief and feel and confirm for themselves and for everybody else. I have them say it to everybody else, yes, the ring is still there. I then direct everybody to focus all of their mental effort on trying to aport this ring into another dimension. We focus, we focus, we focus. I say that I'm feeling something warm in my hand. There's a warmth in my hand that I'm feeling, and the ring seems to be getting warmer. It's a strange warmth, very strange. And then after a good minute or so of focusing by everybody in the room, I then have another person take the handkerchief off my hand, and lo and behold, the ring has vanished. It has successfully A-ported into another dimension. Everybody was wowed by that trick. It didn't make any difference how much education they had, how intelligent they were. Everybody was wowed by that trick because there was no way, and I put that in quotes, there was no way that that was a magic trick. There's no way that I could have done that. Everything was on the up and up. Everybody got to confirm that the ring was there. There was no way that I could make it disappear. My hand was right in the middle of the circle. People are holding my arms. That ring, A-ported, absolutely absolutely into another dimension. Of course, the problem came up a little bit later when the chief civil deputy asked for his ring back. (laughs) <laughs> it's his, it's his oh my gosh it's his class ring from princeton for crying out loud and i had to tell him i'm sorry it's a ported into another dimension he wasn't really happy about this but what can i do i'm sorry the experiment was a success which means that you know you can't get your ring back unless you go into the other dimension to find it but you'll be happy to know that by the end of the business day the chief civil deputy's ring had miraculously materialized on his desk when he was out of the office and he was able to find it upon his return it's all fun and games until your Princeton class ring gets A-ported into another dimension. So the last thing I'm going to say about this is that this is the simplest trick in the world. And I never told anybody how I did this trick. I am going to tell you, however, number one, so you can understand how simple it is. Number two, how you can understand how otherwise very intelligent people can be fooled by a very simple trick. And number three, so that hopefully you won't feel so bad about yourself by being fooled by Joseph Smith's magic trick. <laughs> and there's one other thing i want to teach by revealing to you how it is that i did this magic trick and the fact is that as a magician working on my own I can do a lot of miraculous stuff, but if I have somebody else who's working with me, the sky's the limit. Because the explanation to the trick is that yes, I had somebody working with me. In magic parlance, that person is called a Confederate. It is a person that the audience does not know is working with you, but the secret is between you and the Confederate alone. Now this Confederate has to be somebody that you trust, somebody that you know is gonna play their part correctly, not gonna goof up the trick, hopefully, and certainly not gonna tell anybody else about how the trick was performed afterward and my confederate in this trick was the elected prosecutor. It's Mike, it's the guy who loves magic and wants me to do magic at every gathering. So I talk with Mike beforehand and I get him in on the trick. And as you might have guessed by now, this circle is arranged in such a way that Mike is to my immediate right. He is the last person to reach his hand up under the handkerchief and confirm that the ring is still in my hand. Everybody else has already done so. Everybody else has already confirmed to themselves and to everybody else that the ring is still there in the palm of my hand under the handkerchief. Mike is the last one to do so. He confirms so to himself as well as to everybody else. But unbeknownst to everybody else, he takes the ring with him when he pulls his hand out. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I just revealed the trick. I am so going to hell. And everything else is just showmanship. Now, if Mike had not been my confederate, and if indeed he had just confirmed that the ring was still there in my hand like everybody else had, I gotta tell you, I'd have a pretty difficult time performing that trick. I don't think that ring would be A-porting anywhere. It would still be there at the end of everybody concentrating and then pulling the handkerchief off my hand. Yep, there'd be the ring. What I am saying is that first off, because I built this up as an experiment that would not necessarily work. Second, because I gave it a quote-unquote reasonable, Alternate explanation than it's simply being a magic trick and three because I built it up as being the magic trick or excuse me the magic experiment that fooled Houdini. Everybody is expecting something miraculous. And they're not expecting something as simple as me having a confederate. And they're also not expecting the elected prosecutor to be the confederate. It has to be somebody that not only you trust, but that everybody else trusts too. So what am I saying by bringing this up, this idea about a confederate? All I'm saying is Joseph Smith could have done this on his own, but if he had somebody else who was in on it with him, then what might have seen only miraculous could have ended up being totally mind-blowing. I'm not saying that he did have a confederate. I'm not saying that it was Oliver Cowdery. I'm not saying that it was anybody in particular. All I'm saying is that he could have done it on his own, but he also could have had a confederate. And if he did, that can take something that is absolutely impossible to do, i.e. making a ring, a port out of this dimension and into another, so simple that anybody could do it. Okay, so that's about all I have for tonight. Those are the comments that I wanted to make in response to many of the questions and challenges and other people's comments regarding the episode Magic and the Book of Mormon. I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. And in the midst of this global pandemic, remember, wash your hands frequently with hot water and soap. Stay away from crowds. Maintain good social distancing of at least six feet from the nearest person. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor. And together, we will lick this coronavirus. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air.